This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch the English Heritage Podcast every Thursday. Just make sure to subscribe. Today, we're looking back at an era where the country went to war with itself three times. Its monarch was executed, and a republic was in place for more than a decade. The English civil wars, which were also part of a wider conflict with Scotland, Wales and Ireland, lasted from 1642 to 1651, finally ending with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And answering your questions about this politically polarising period are senior properties historian Paul Patterson and senior properties curator Roy Porter. So let's begin with outlining the basic story, Paul. Some people refer to this period as the English Civil War, but James asks, could you explain why we don't use this phrase? We can still use the phrase because there were a series of three civil wars with events that were concentrated in England, but also involved events elsewhere in the middle of the 17th century. And they are the first English Civil War, which was 1642 to six, the second English Civil War, 1648, and the third civil war, English civil war, that is 1649 to 51. But they were part of a wider series of interlinked conflicts in terms of politics, governance, religious dispute in all four places. So in England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. And so they're grouped among a larger series of conflicts today and are more commonly referred to as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And they span the years a little wider 1639 to 1652. And the three kingdoms are England, which included Wales at that time, Scotland and Ireland. And the reason that they're interlinked is complex, but the King of England at the time, Charles I, was also King of Scotland and King of Ireland. And we said in the introduction that this period involved those other kingdoms, which you've just outlined. Uh, that yeah. underscore tall underscore Jacobite and Mike <laughs> underscore Cowles six, both from Instagram, are wanting to know how those countries that you've just described were involved. Basically, the larger conflict that I referred to involved really complex and shifting loyalties between people in all of those countries and included a number of kind of separate but linked conflicts. So we can list them very quickly. There was the First and Second Bishops' Wars in 1639 and 40, the Irish Rebellion in 1641 to 2, the Irish Confederate Wars in 1642 to 48, the Anglo-Scottish War, 1650 to 52, and the English Conquest of Ireland, 1649 to 53. So you can see the scope of those. And in all of those conflicts, there were English, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish soldiers involved and fighting on various sides. So just to give you a little bit of overview of those, the, the Bishops' Wars, the first in that sequence, start in 1639, and they were fought in Scotland and Northern England over Charles I's attempts to enforce a common religious order and a common prayer book in England and Scotland, despite there being very different religious traditions in Scotland, and it caused a lot of offence and ultimately a war, or two wars. The Irish Confederate Wars, were fought between Protestant and Catholic forces over matters of religion, 
land ownership, crucially, because there'd been large-scale Protestant English settlements under the previous king, James I, and also disputes over political power and the method of government. So, for instance, was Ireland to be subordinate to the English parliament, or was it to be ruled as a separate kingdom by Charles I? Those were the issues there. Of course, in England, we'll hear a bit more of that in a minute, the wars were fought primarily for the balance of political control, king or parliament, though there were, as I think we may hear a bit more about, strong religious and social elements too. And then, despite having helped the English Parliament in the first civil war in England against Charles I, the Scots fought against the English Parliament in the Anglo-Scottish War, 1650-52, because there were plans in Scotland to support an invasion of England and to install Charles I's son, at that time obviously long dead, Charles II would become King of Scotland and England. And finally, the wars in Ireland were fought by Parliament and latterly headed by Oliver Cromwell to break a coalition between the Catholic faction there and the resurgent Royalists who were also supporting the return of Charles II. So you can see how complex the whole thing is and how it spanned all four places, all four countries between 1639 and 1653. It really went on for a long time, the whole thing, um, even up until this restoration with King Charles II in 1660. So it's, I suppose, close to what, 18 years, nearly two decades of turmoil. Yes, so that's, indeed. Yeah, that's, that must have been a real strain, you know, as well as all the, the death and destruction that was going on. Um, it was horrendous. It was horrendous period. And, uh, you know, the, the number of casualties as a, you know, as a, as a percentage it's been calculated that they were similar to the casualties in the First World War, proportionately per population. So it was a momentous and terrible 18 years. Talking about the religious aspects that you touched on there, Darcy Blahut, I think it's pronounced, would like to know how religion played a role in the civil wars. So if we want to hand over to Roy to answer that question. It seems it's a simple question, doesn't it? But <laughs> the, the answer is rather complicated. I mean, Paul's mentioned the complexity of the situation well you know religion really contributed to that and it, it played a very major role because religion was one of the few factors which was likely to determine which side a person would actually fight on you know historians have debated particularly during the 20th century what were the deep structural causes of the civil war and various theories have fallen by the wayside, but one which continues to hold ground is religion. It's one of the important conditions of the 1640s, which uh, fueled the tension, which actually led to the war itself. And, uh, you know, in a sense, the interesting thing about this is that we're really talking about the fallout of the religious changes of the 16th century. Now, we tend to think of the Reformation as being done and dusted in the reigns of Henry VIII and through to Elizabeth I and you know, Reformation fits neatly into that category. Well, you know, historically speaking, the people of the 1630s and 1640s are still living through the Reformation. They're, they're having to work out the implications of those great religious changes. And by the 1640s, the starting point is to say there was broad support for a Church of England which combined Reformed Protestant theology but with traditional, almost Catholic apparatus. So you have Calvinist views on salvation, but you have a church hierarchy with priests and bishops and archbishops and services following the Book of Common Prayer. But here's the thing, 
for many people within that church, and they're known as Puritans, and we're going to be talking a lot about them today, I suspect, they felt that the reformation of the church hadn't been completed. and They placed greater emphasis on preaching the word of God rather than the ceremonies as they saw them of the prayer book. And these people were intensely spiritual and introspective, and they're also the sort of people who are keen to see sin eradicated from society more generally as well. So they're the sort of people who call for godly reformation of manners and customs. But the other extreme of the church, you had another group of people who historians refer to as Arminians, and really that's because they're referring to a Dutch theologian called Jacob Arminius. You can forget about him for the time being. The point is that their theology was less Calvinist, and they emphasized the importance of order and ceremony in church services. So one big example is they looked to establish communion tables at the east end of churches where altars had been before the Reformation. And that was seen with some suspicion by the Puritans as being a very Catholic measure. And we have to remember that this is a time when there was a general anti-Catholic sentiment in the country. So you have this mix of views and tensions within the English church. And you might argue that a pragmatic approach to governing this and sorting out the different sides, which after all was the king's role, would be to mediate between the different viewpoints. But Charles I's sympathies lay very definitely in one direction, and his sympathies lay with those people, the Arminians, who wanted to have a more elaborate form of worship, who, in the eyes of the Puritans, whose reformist and godly zeal was suspect, who appeared to be too close to Catholicism if you like. And as a consequence, the acceptability of the king and the bishops who were appointed in his reign for people at the other end of the spectrum, though their acceptability decreased and they regarded them with suspicion. Now, you have to add to all that, as Paul's just said, that Charles is king of three kingdoms, and that in Scotland, he rules over a people who are more strictly Calvinist and inclined to what's known as Presbyterianism, while in Ireland, he rules over a country whose population is majority Catholic, but with power in the hands of Protestants. And I think you put all that together, and I would say, suggest that, you know, not only is the situation complex, but in the wrong hands, it's a powder keg. And in several respects, that powder keg explodes in the 1640s, with very generally speaking, Puritans and those who are more suspicious of the sort of church Charles was promoting ending up in the parliamentary side against him. And during the war itself, increasingly radical religious voices are heard, including critically in the parliamentary army. And this serves to characterize the war for some as a war of religion. So it's absolutely fundamental. It's interesting how when you're fighting on many fronts, you kind of have to, I suppose, choose your enemy. And what they've sort of done is they've chosen a person to fight against, haven't they, in a way? Yeah, and religion isn't the, the sole determinant of, of where you fight or who you fight and who you fight for in the Civil War. And you know, the picture becomes complicated because you know, everybody in England was claiming to be fighting for the true Reformed religion. So you know, what is your interpretation of what the true Reformed religion hmm. is? And that's where the big debate lay. Well, let's start with some questions about the first English Civil War. This took place from 1642 to 1646. Simon Wright 2811 from Instagram is asking, 
What started the English Civil War, the first one, Roy? Well, you know, I suppose it's a sort of a mixture of resentment in some quarters of the way that Charles I had ruled in his three kingdoms. Then you have a set of circumstances which allow that resentment to be expressed ever more loudly in Parliament. And there's a breakdown in trust between the king and his opponents in Parliament and an eventual resort to arms to settle the matter. We can look at that in more detail. I mean, Paul mentioned a little while ago Charles I's attempts to impose an English-style prayer book in Scotland. He tries to do that in 1637, and that goes spectacularly wrong, and the Scots rebel. And Charles fails to reach either a negotiated settlement or to defeat the rebels militarily. What actually happens is in 1640, the Scots invade northern England, and as a consequence of that, Charles is forced to call Parliament. And you have to remember, he hasn't called Parliament since 1629. So why does he do it? Well, he does it because he needs the cash. He needs money to pay for an army to fight the Scots. But this allows for Parliament to become a forum for discussing discontent with Charles's government. And uh, the people in Parliament who are suspicious of Charles's intentions, and they want to try and restrain his power. So over the next two years, the king is forced to accept what, what he would regard as several affronts to his authority. So, for example, he has to give his assent to a triennial act by which Parliament would have to be summoned by the king every three years. And the Parliament actually passes an act whereby it can't be dissolved without its own consent. Two of Charles's closest advisers are impeached. It's the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Elder Stafford. But the Elder Stafford ends up being executed. So Charles has to agree to these impositions and these affronts because he's, he's, he's in a position where he's relying on Parliament to provide him with money. But eventually what happens, Parliament makes moves to take control of the army and that's too much for the king. And famously, he attempts to arrest, arrest five leading members of Parliament. He fails. He removes himself from London for fear of his security and of his family, packs his wife off to France to keep her safe. Parliament passes an, an act to exclude bishops from the House of Lords. And in March, it passes what's known as the Militia Ordinance. So in other words, this is an order without the king's assent, which gives it the power to raise military forces out in the shires. And trust between the two sides has broken down completely by this point. And over the next few months, there's a growing expectation of conflict. And those MPs and peers supportive of the king end up leaving London which means that Parliament becomes ever more full of those resolved to take the king on. And the ceremonial start of the war is when the king raises his standard at Nottingham in August of 1642, which is, a, I suppose, a very feudal way of calling up support. Fascinating. So it's really in the First English Civil War, if you wanted to sort of broadly describe it, it's, it's really about the people versus the king. In mm. fact... Well, it's about some of the people versus the king. Yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing, that on both sides of the divide, you, you, you will find people from all sorts of social backgrounds. You have parliamentary peers, you have royalist peers, you have parliamentary gentry, you have royalist gentry, you have the middling sort of people, yeomen on both sides, you have people from rank and file of the population on both sides. So it's not as if you can say there's a particular strata society versus the crown. And this is one of the great interesting questions about the Civil War, isn't it? You know, what were the impulses which directed these people to take up arms against their king? 
I think it's fair mm. to say that what you've just said, Roy, is that you know Parliament was made up of many and varied people, wasn't it? It wasn't just noblemen yeah. at the time. In fact, there were many people who weren't noble, who were merchants and who had financial and business interests. So that's part of the mix as well. So it's brokered by Parliament effectively against the king. That's the fundamentals of it. And then who supported each side, as Roy has just said, is immensely complicated and varied. Maybe the best way to describe the first English Civil War is is a really grand conflict of interests. <laughs> um, lots of people with lots of different interests trying to um, effect some sort of change. Yeah, and, different interests and different views of authority. Yes. Where there's authority. Authority fits into yeah. it, doesn't it? Yeah. Definitely. Well, um, let's bring in uh, a question from one of our international listeners who's from Japan. And they say, I cannot imagine that the population resisted their king. What made them do it? This is from swine underscore wedge 0128 on Instagram. So what made people rise up against their king, Roy? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say, as we've just said, of course, is that not everybody did resist the king. You know, the country was divided between those who opposed Charles, those who supported him. For those who opposed the king, they were facing a monarch who had ruled without parliament for 11 years. He'd financed his regime by raising money without parliamentary agreement. He'd exploited all sorts of sort of dubious feudal rights to raise yet more money. And add to that, he appeared to be forcing a form of religion on the people, which was redolent of Catholicism. And for two years since the return of parliament, nothing had been resolved. As I said before, trust had broken down between the king and his opponents. Leading parliamentary sought to neutralize the king, protect themselves from his potential wrath, by increasing parliamentary control over his government. And they intended that parliament would have control over the great officers of state so that the king shouldn't be free to pick his privy councillors, that they should be appointed with reference to parliament and that parliament should control reform of the church and that the king should accept the militia ordinance I was talking about. Now, of course, the king has other ideas. For him, his authority rested in what we call the divine right of kings, so according to that view, the king derives his authority from God. It descends downwards. That's the point. Authority comes down from God to the king, to his people. As far as Charles is concerned, you know, Parliament's existence was by virtue of his grace. In other words, Parliament exists only because the king wants it, needs it to exist. But it shouldn't be able to command the king. And it's perfectly natural that in times of national emergency, the king could dispense with law raise seemingly illegal taxes. And in the words of Charles's father, James I, if his subjects were upset with that, they had no remedy except prayers and tears. Hmm. that's That's the view of authority from the king. But the more radical parliament became in its demands, the more moderates moved over to support the king, meaning that the king, whose popularity had been about as low as it could be a few months previously, had by the start of the war attracted far more support. So you have this remarkable situation where a king who had been generally unpopular, particularly amongst the political classes, two years previously, has managed to gain a party of supporters around him because people in Parliament appear to become ever more radical in their in, in their demands. So as I said earlier, there's this question of authority. For people in Parliament, they're fighting the king because of his dodgy track record, if you like and the concern that he is becoming tyrannical or could become tyrannical. And having pushed the king to the extreme, they have to be sure that he's going to keep his word. And so they're sort of rising up against him in order to force the king into a position where he will eventually have to negotiate a solution whereby they gain the upper hand. 
The king, on the, on the other hand, does, has no truck with that for the reasons I've just laid out. And the interesting thing is he, he's successful enough in promoting his message and gaining support so that, you know, when we talk about parliament, it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, about three-fifths of the commons were left in London. So two-fifths of the commons supported the king or were moderate enough or traditional enough, conservative enough not to want to take arms up against the king. And about two-thirds of the lords moved towards the king as well. So Parliament by 1642, when we talk about Parliament, is a much smaller group of people than we've been talking about previously. Well, that's the political side, I suppose, covered. Uh, Moving on to some questions about uh, the military and how it all sort of panned out that way. Fleming underscore Grove from Instagram asks, how were regular soldiers conscripted and from where, Paul? Bearing in mind the the complicated nature of this initial conflict, how did you organise? Well, starting from zero, basically, there is no standing army in Britain at this time in England at this time. And in fact, there isn't a standing army until the new model army is created by the parliamentary side in 1645. So the first three years of the war, they have to raise soldiers from scratch. And it's pretty difficult. It's estimated that about 150,000 soldiers were recruited between 1642 and 1649, and obviously quite a lot more afterwards. So those are the sort of numbers that we're talking about. And it can't have been easy to do that. I think it's also fair to say, despite you know what we've been saying about loyalties and how you chose sides, I believe that the vast majority of people had no real wish to fight. They didn't want to fight each other. They, you know, they had differences which they wanted resolving, but conscription and joining the army was the last thing that most ordinary people want. Having said that, they had to raise armies, and you know, sixteen forty-two was a period where they were basically beginning from a standing start. And they had three main methods of doing so. So you've heard from Roy about Parliament's early issue of this thing called the Militia Ordinance. Now this, it was an attempt, obviously, to wrest military power from the king, who was technically head of the armed forces. And it allowed Parliament to establish committees in all of the big cities of the country, and in every county, to raise men and to arm them. So that process began immediately. On the royalist side, the king resorted to an ancient method, a document which had been issued many, many times during the course of the Middle Ages, called the Commission of Array. And that empowered the king and leading men of each county and city across the country to raise men and arm them. Both were difficult to enforce. But then there's the third method which the king resorted to and had some considerable success with as well, because he had the ability and the power to appoint individuals, to give individual leading men of the country commissions to raise men and to fight on his behalf under their command. It's a little bit feudal, I suppose, but it was something that was particularly successful in that leading men might attract a lot of people from their particular estates who would be loyal to them. And they usually were expecting if they were called up to fight, they would fight only in their local area. And so it was a real problem to get them to fight on a nationwide basis. And during the first few years of the war, 
desertion was immense. And so men would be conscripted to fight and they, they would campaign away from their, their home bases. And a lot of them would just desert. And so the whole process had to begin again in the next campaigning season. The other thing is that the methods by which coercion was exercised was done by existing mechanisms. And it was done in the parishes, in the wards of towns and cities by existing constables in conjunction with parties of soldiers from both sides. It's very much like the recruiting party in later days, but it involves forced joining of, of, an, uh, of an armed unit. So the, a lot of the parishes and the wards were keen to send anyone they didn't want. So the, the <laughs> idle and the criminal, but of course the army wanted single, strong young men, those people that might have been in service, laboring on the fields or in the towns, servants, apprentices. So there's this constant battle to get good quality soldiers into both sides. And I, I think it's fair to say that it was pretty unpopular all round. But recruitment, for the reasons I've given, desertion, casualties in battlefield loss, was continuous. It went on all the time to refill those losses, and not just due to death in battle, but disease, because armies moving from place to place were brilliant agents of spreading disease, not only among themselves, but among the civilian population. So there was large-scale casualties on both counts. Having mm. said all that, there was a regional pattern to recruitment and parliament got large numbers of its recruits from the south and east london kent the east midlands and east anglia while the king's support lied very largely in wales the west midlands the west of england the north and indeed some in from about 1644 from ireland and even the king had a few mercenary regiments from france fighting on his side and then of course finally there were a lot of scots soldiers who played a crucial role in support of parliament during the first civil war that was going to be one of my follow-up questions really about mercenaries and uh, foreign influence and also how it was going to be organized but you've answered it by saying it's sort of a regional conflict yeah, and really there, internally there, there weren't very many mercenaries to be honest i mean the junction of the scots into the war wasn't a mercenary thing it was a political thing there were a few a few professional soldiers from abroad and a few small professional regiments, but generally mercenaries didn't play a great role. The soldiers from Ireland is perhaps the most controversial, the king bringing Catholic soldiers over to fight in North Wales and Cheshire in 1644 was a big propaganda victory for Parliament and introducing these barbarian Catholic soldiers from Ireland <laughs> as it was portrayed. Right. So you wouldn't have had a situation where... A constable had selected a group of men in one village and then two, three miles away in another village, it was the other side who were being recruited. Yes, that sometimes did happen depending upon the loyalties of the local landholders and the local leading politicians. It could happen. It could even happen within the same village that people joined different sides. So it was quite fragmented, I suppose, even though it was broadly a regional a sort of regional camps effectively. Regional patterns, but on the micro scale, it, it, you know, it could go either way. And the really important thing to note is that it had to be constant all the time to make up very largely for desertion and death. Keith Bracey on Facebook has a question about the role of King Charles I's nephew, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. So he wants to know what effect did Rupert's sacking and burning of the parliamentary town of Birmingham have on the outcome of the English civil wars? 
What's your response, Roy? Good question. Just ought to say, for anybody who doesn't know who Prince Rupert was, he, as Keith says, was the nephew of Charles I. So he's he's the son of the King's sister Elizabeth and her husband, Frederick V, who was the Elector Palatine. Basically, he's he's been brought up in the, on the continent, okay? So he's been brought up during the Thirty Years' War in Europe. He's actually fought in the Thirty Years' War in Europe. He's in his early 20s at the start of the Civil War. He's extremely flamboyant, attractive, full of energy. He comes to England to support his uncle, King Charles, and he's made general of the king's horse. And I think it's fair to say that he was uh, feared by his enemies, all sorts of legends which grew up a- a- around him. And he played would play an important role in the battles of, well, the three big battles of the war, actually, Edgehill, Marston Moor, and Naseby. But so far as Birmingham's concerned, the siege Keith asked about occurred in April, I think, of 1643. And Prince Rupert had been commanded by the king to secure the West Midlands, okay? Partly because of the resources of that area, a locality which was useful for in terms of producing weapons. But also, this is critical, because at that time, the king was waiting for his queen, Henrietta Maria, who was in the north, to come down to Oxford to meet the king where he was staying that's where the king was based and essentially pacifying the west midlands or 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 making sure it was royalist was a way of ensuring that there was a safe route for the queen to come down towards oxford now birmingham was a noted center of puritanism and was supporting parliament and there's there's actually a suggestion I'm, i'm not sure how true this is but there's a suggestion that charles may have wanted birmingham punished for a slight on him the, the year previously, in 1642, before the Battle of Edge Hill, as he was passing through the area, some, some of the locals of Birmingham had apparently taken some of his carriages away. Um, there's been a suggestion that, you know, Birmingham was on his hit list and that, you know, Prince Rupert would do a good thing by uh, Exacting punishing revenge, yeah. Uh, these. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's something which has been suggested anyway. But the point really is that Rupert takes Birmingham, but is surprised by the level of resistance he finds there. It's only got a small garrison around 200 people and yet they managed to hold off his forces for some hours first of all on the outer defenses of the town which had been hardly thrown up sort of earthen defenses around the town and then later when he goes into the town his forces are attacked from inside the town as well he eventually takes it but notoriously his troops sack it. And this is something which is quite common in terms of sieges of this time. When towns are stormed, you often find that the soldiers who are storming the town reach a point where, you know, that in a frenzy, they start attacking everything. And this is a case in point. You know, it's quite notorious what happens is soldiers set light to houses, they loot property, they attack inhabitants, and apparently civilians are killed as well as those in arms. And you know, I'm sort of interested in, in, in what Paul thinks about this, because I think, historically speaking, I think the sacking of Birmingham, its strategic importance is, as I say, part of that campaign to take the West Midlands for the king. And that's successful. So the Queen is able to come down to Oxford and bring munitions in her wake as she's coming down to Oxford. So that works. But I think in terms of the longer term civil war, I think its importance isn't so much that as the fact that it's one of those episodes where parliamentary supporters are writing popular broadsides which describe the sort of activity Prince Rupert's involved with. And it's one of those episodes which contributes to this series of tales about Rupert, about how ruthless he is, and the sort of 
tyrannical and brutal form of rule you might expect from the Stuart monarchy. So it plays into the, the propaganda war as much as it does into the actual strategy of the civil war. I don't, I don't know what you think, Paul. I think that's bang on, really. I think it was a propaganda victory. If you think when it happens, it's still quite early in the civil war. In terms of the overall military effect on the civil war, it's negligent, in fact. Uh, sorry, neg- negligible. And in fact, Rupert, it, it wouldn't have been unusual to Rupert, having fought in that conflict which you described on the continent, the Thirty Years' War, the sacking of towns was routine. So this was something that he had been involved with previously. And in fact, when you read through the various accounts of the action in Birmingham, when Rupert finally got into the town, past those barricades on the thrown-up defences, then he, he, his soldiers were being attacked from within houses. It's street fighting, as it were. And so the sacking of the town, it was partly, well, they're firing at us, we're going to burn them out, which was a routine thing of war on the continent. I think the significant thing is that it hadn't been seen in England. And this is perhaps the first instance where you, know, you have civilian casualties and large-scale destruction of property, and it's quite shocking. Mm. And so Parliament seizes on this and uses it in the way that Roy has described for propaganda. It feels very violent and not like the sort of chivalry that um, some previous generations might have been used to, maybe. You know, just standard battles on horseback in a location. This is almost like terrorism meets guerrilla warfare, really. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's right. I mean, I mean Paul was talking earlier about you know, just... just how statistically important the civil war is in the number of casualties in terms of the number of the dead. And this, it, we have to get out of our heads this idea of chivalric battlefields because this is brutal and it's nasty. It's particularly nasty in the context of you know, storming towns, fighting you know, house to house, street to street, the way we've just described. But you only have to read some of the letters written by Oliver Cromwell, for example, after his notable victories, where he uses the most blood-curdling language to describe the extermination of his enemies, to understand that this is violence on a scale unimaginable Mm. in the years preceding the Civil War. That's a very shocking set of events, really, and one that sets the tone, I suppose, for the uh, conflicts as they continue. Mark Blackburn on Twitter asks, is it right that Elmit, which is a place near Leeds, was the last part of England to cave in during the First Civil War, Paul? Not quite. Basically, this refers to the Battle of Sherburn in Elmet, east of Leeds, and it was fought on the 15th of October in 1645. But it wasn't the last action of the war, nor the last place to cave in. But it was a fairly significant but small action. It involved about 3,000 combatants combined on both sides, of which around 50 were killed. But it was a moral victory for Parliament because the Royalists got it badly wrong and, and had to flee. And about 300 to 400 of them were taken prisoner by the parliamentary force. But after that, there was still fighting. There was fighting into 1646, in fact, the following year. And the last set-piece battle was on the 21st of March, 1646, uh, at Stow on the Wold in Gloucestershire. And that was an action of about six and a half thousand men and it was a resounding parliamentary victory and after that time there is no more royalist field army so the war is effectively over uh, with that action 
However, after that, several royalist garrisons in specific places do hold on. And the last in England to hold out is actually on the 27th of July, 1646, and that's Wallingford Castle in Berkshire. But even beyond that, in Wales, some garrisons hold on longer. And the last one to hold out there is at Raglan Castle uh, in South Wales on the 19th of August, 1646. But famously, the last of all to surrender was actually early in 1647. And that was at Harlech, Harlech Castle in North Wales, which gave in after a long siege beginning in June of 1646 and ending on the 15th of March, 1647. So although Elmet was quite late in the First English Civil War, it wasn't the last action nor the last place to surrender. Mm. But at the end of that, the parliamentary side has won. So it's then what happens next that determines what or what hasn't been achieved. Let's talk now about the Second Civil War from 1648, during which King Charles I was a prisoner at the English heritage property of Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight. Did the Roundheads always intend for the country to become a republic? Asks Ellie Engineer on Instagram. And this is for you, Paul. Well, Roy, Roy has described pretty well the situation of you know, opinion, both on the royalist side and on the parliamentary side, and how complicated and nuanced it actually was. So I think the beginning of the answer to this question is no, not always, not at first, and not by everyone. I think, I think that's probably the best way to express it. Really, the parliamentary side was n- not all of one mind from the beginning although they had some common principles, which Roy has described. And there was varying opinion over what form government should take with or without the king. Some didn't desire to get rid of the king, and again, Roy has described that, but wanted to limit his power and allowing parliament to have a much greater role. This was a result very largely of the early part of the reign of Charles I, as Roy's described, that period called the personal rule between 1629 and 1640, when Charles dismissed Parliament and ruled with only his Privy Council for those 11 years. And he made lots of arbitrary and unpopular decisions. And so opinion begins to harden against him. And, you know, there were some who thought at that time that there could be government without a king. So there were radical elements in Parliament from the outset, but they became worst in response to Charles I's intransigent and less than honest dealings. All the way through the civil wars, Charles is less than genuine in his negotiations. After the defeat of Charles and his arrest, which we've just been discussing, the end of the war in 1646, there was a quest for a solution involving the king and parliament for over two years, which obviously came to an end with the Second Civil War. And so in parliament, there were a number of broad factions, but broadly speaking, the Presbyterian faction proposed a reformed monarchy regulated by a written constitution and a single state church, while another powerful group, the independents, wanted a radical political regime in which the king had little power and much wider religious freedom but not necessarily entirely without the king. And so what eventually happens is that the army becomes the power broker and it's allied with the independents. 
And within the army, there were various political groups with different loyalties, some of them moderate, but quite a lot of them really quite radical. Political infighting continues. There's a new alliance between the king and the Scots, which leads to the Second Civil War, and the radical elements of parliament supported by the army purge the moderates and exclude them from parliament. And their agenda then becomes getting rid of the king, which they duly did in January 1649. So that's a very long way of saying it varied through time. There were always radical elements, but the aim at first was not universally for the country to become a republic. And worth also saying that roundheads means parliamentarians in the civil war language. I mean, I think it's, it's worth just adding one, 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 more, one more thing to that, which is that, you know, I think that for most people, particularly at the beginning of the war, fighting the war, you know, the, the idea that they were sort of on a trajectory to killing the king would have been absolutely anathema to them. That's true. And, you yeah. know, when you, and when you look at the way in which parliament actually justifies its actions at the beginning of the war, they, they actually say they're fighting to defend the king's person. You know, there's almost a sense in which as time goes on and increasingly people feel that they can't trust Charles, there's then, you know, an issue of whether or not actually get rid of Charles. Can you have another king? Is there another member of his family who can become become king? So you, you have to sort of divorce the question of Charles and the question of the monarchy. And of course, the great thing for Charles and all of this, if, because of all the things Paul's just described, there's this sort of myriad of points of view and different objectives and ambitions and within what you know we call broadly parliament. It meant the king could pick and choose you know that he plays this brilliant game you know having been politically inept (laughs) for a lot of his reign towards the end of his life he plays a brilliant game of playing people off against each other and and keeping people waiting for his answers when they're negotiating with him and the really interesting thing for me is the fact that you know the group which will end up taking power and killing the king the independents and the army are a group who back in 1647 are negotiating like crazy with the king and in fact, there's one historian who's even suggested that the trial of Charles I was an extension of that sort of negotiation. Now, I, I don't actually subscribe to this view, but it's interesting that what, what is clear is that you know, right up until the point which the king is executed, there is a diversity of opinion, even within the, the, the group of people we see as being most responsible for propelling the country down that particular route. Look how many people had to be excluded from parliament yeah, uh, in order for the radicals to take over and to begin proceedings for the removal of the king. Over 200, over 200 were expelled or kept from getting into parliament. And how many signed his death warrant? I think, what was it, 58 or something like that, Roy? I can't remember the exact number. Yeah, limited number, here. Yeah. yeah. So the radicals become, they become more powerful, but they become smaller and smaller group. And yet they affected a, a massive change by eliminating the king completely and wasn't there a a big groan by the crowd when the head eventually left the block one of the contemporary descriptions describes that doesn't they saying this is this terrible moment in the crowd at the point of the the king's execution yeah Yeah. so read into that what you will the red wrangler on instagram wants to know if public opinion over charles the first execution was different if you were living in london versus outside so, I don't know, bearing in mind that, that moan, what was the reaction in different areas? 
Well, I think I think that moan's really very interesting. I mean, I, I think there was public. Well, first of all, what's public opinion? You know, there's opinion you can express publicly, and then there's the opinion which is you know, felt by the populace in general, which can't, make, in some circumstances, can't be expressed freely. And I think that that's an important distinction. I think there was a difference between London and places outside, but for very particular reasons, and they're really the reasons Paul's just mentioned. The fact that effectively what had happened in London was a, a military putsch that the you know, parliament had been purged of those people who objected to what was going on, that the city was awash with the army at this time. I think an opportunity to speak out against what was going on would have been difficult. We know that it happened. It's not just that contemporary description of the you know, the great moment when Charles I is executed, but we, we have accounts of people you know, royalists speaking out against what was happening. We know that certain people, certain of the regicides, the people who signed the death warrant Paul mentioned, were threatened in the days immediately following the execution of the king. So I suppose the, the point I'm making is there's diversity of opinion within London, as well as across the country, generally speaking. But within London, you have the heart of the, the new military regime. And it is a military regime at this point. It's very much the army that's in control. I think the for the majority of people across the country, for all the reasons we've discussed, you know, killing the king wasn't what they were expecting the war to end with. You know, that wasn't their objective when the war started. I think it would have been a sense of shock and horror of what had happened. You know, this is a a very traditional conservative society, generally speaking, where for decades they've gone to church and heard sermons and homilies telling them that, you know, that the king is somebody who is to be respected and to be obeyed, that sort of almost inbred sense in which you don't knock the ruling order is something I think which would have made people feel absolutely aghast as the news spread from London that the king's head had actually been taken from his body. But conversely, there were people throughout the country who were part of, a, of that marginal group who were committed to seeing through the, the logical consequences of their grasp of power and the regicide and the claiming of power by the House of Commons as the supreme authority of the sovereign people. You know, so very shortly after, the House of Lords is abolished, for example, and then the monarchy itself. But I suppose the point is that the prevalence of those views varied across the country. And I think it's fair to say that in former royalist strongholds, such as Cornwall and Wales, you're least likely to find lots of you know, many people who support those views compared to places like East Anglia, where there had been a much greater degree of support for the hotter part of Parliament, if I can put it that way. Moving on, some questions about King Charles I's nemesis, the face of the parliamentarians and the Lord Protector of the eventual Commonwealth of England, Scotland and Ireland, Oliver Cromwell now. And Harry Langford asks on Facebook, what was Oliver Cromwell like as a person, Roy? <laughs> Good now, luck with uh, that one. <laughs> I guess, uh, we could do a whole podcast on this one, couldn't we, really? What was Oliver Cromwell like as a person? Well, th th there's a contemporary description of Oliver Cromwell written by a man called John Maidstone, who was a steward um, in and coffrer in Cromwell's household. And he's as good a way in to describing Cromwell briefly as, as anything, if you like. I mean, he gives a description of Cromwell's physicality. So he says that Cromwell was about five foot ten and compact and strong, I think are the words he uses. But the thing I want to play up really is that he's, he describes how his temper could be exceedingly fiery, but at the same time, he would keep the flame of it kept down. 
and even says that Cromwell was naturally compassionate towards objects in distress, even to an effeminate measure. So you have, I think, a contradiction at the heart of Cromwell, if we're just talking about his personality, that on the one hand, he could be fiery. We know from his speeches in Parliament that he could upset people with his robust language, which was emotional rather than rhetorical. We know about his ability on the battlefield and how he could rouse his men, you know, and how he's seen as a great leader as a consequence. And against all that, you have descriptions of him being in tears when he hears particular bits of news about his family, moved very emotionally, very highly strung, I suppose, is, is, is what I'm saying. But I think there are two strands to his character I want to emphasize, okay? And I think these take us to the heart of the man. First, there's his background as a gentleman. He's from the gentry. He's a gentleman in Huntingdon, Huntingdonshire, and then later in Cambridgeshire. And ironically, given all that happens in his later life, he's socially conservative. You know, you can see that in his dress and attire, which is famously unostentatious and there's a famous anecdotes about portraits of him being developed, you know, showing him warts and all, isn't there? There's his working towards negotiating with the king in the way we've described. In the 1650s, when he's Lord Protector, he claims he's working to the healing and settling of the kingdom. He suppresses socially radical groups, and he almost accepts the offer of the crown in 1657. So his model of society is very traditional. But the other strand to his character... And I think this is the one that's really defined his character in the years when he was a prominent figure in the country, is his religious belief and zeal. Now, Cromwell is a Puritan, and like many Puritans, he had experienced a sort of personal revelatory conversion in the 1630s. So he comes to God in the 1630s, and that inspires in him a certainty of purpose that's fueled by a belief in providence. Trouble is, the flip side of that certainty is a belief that those who opposed him were wrong, and added to that, they were wrong also in the eyes of God. And it's that belief that drives Cromwell eventually from negotiating with the king to famously declaring, we will cut off his head with the crown on it, and uh, also into committing the sort of atrocities for which he still remembered, and have to say hated, in Ireland. Now, these strands of character can seem contradictory social conservative religious zeal moves to destroying towns and Ireland, all the rest of it and one historian has actually described cromwell as being ideologically schizophrenic you know so we could spend an hour talking about that and about one of the earliest appraisals of him concluded that he was a brave bad man that was written by a royalist but I, I suppose you know we all have contradictory impulses don't we and um it's unraveling and understanding them which makes history so interesting. And uh, Cromwell's a case in point. Uh, I'm going to add a, a description, if that's okay. I, th- I think he, th- he thinks he's ruling with divine right. Yeah. Well, you see, the great thing about providence, a providential view of things, is that your success is a demonstration of divine favour, isn't it? Mm. So every time Cromwell wins a battle, it's because God is on his side. And one of the points at which he becomes troubled is when in the 1650s, the country goes to war with Spain. And there's an enterprise out in the Caribbean and the military campaign out there doesn't go very well. And there's this sort of searching of conscience, which happens where, where you know, Cromwell and, his, and, and the people around him having to ask themselves, why is God not showing favor on them anymore? Is it because they're not ruling in a godly way within England? So, yes, I think you're absolutely right, Charles. I think he, he, he does 
you know, he, he thinks that, you know, he's ruling according to, you know, at the pleasure of God in the sense that, you know, he has to do the right thing in order to maintain that, that sort of divine approbation yeah. all the time. But for as long as he does that, then, you know, he's going to be successful. Yeah. And yes, people on the receiving end think it's tyrannical. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, interesting, depending on your perspective. Yeah. I think events rather took over as well, didn't they, Roy? Because certainly in the 1650s, actually from 1648 onwards, when they the parliamentary side attempts many, many times to come up with a new, <laughs> a new constitution that's going to work, they repeatedly come up against impossible variance of opinion. And so ultimately he finds himself almost a victim of circumstance and the characteristics which you've just described means that he, he eventually feels he has to take almost total control. Bearing in mind Cromwell's Puritanism, Joan says, did Cromwell really ban Christmas, Roy? The answer is no, he didn't personally. Okay, so he appears to have supported a policy which got rid of Christmas or attempted to do so temporarily, but it wasn't his personal intervention which resulted in that. The background to this is that the problem with Christmas for the Puritans and for the godly was that, you know, it's ostensibly a religious festival, but it was associated, as it is today, with all sorts of secular pastimes, you know, feasting, drinking, dancing, and it was felt that that undermined its importance. And for the Puritans and the godly, what they want to do is to focus attention on the, the central religious messages of things like Christmas. And so what they try to do is to divorce religious festivals, generally speaking, from the secular side of festivals. And it's not just Christmas they end up attacking. It's also Easter and Whitson. But it actually happens in the 1640s. It happens towards the end of the, well, it's in the middle of the Civil War, around 1645 and 1647. In fact, 1647 is when the ordinance is passed, actually abolishing Christmas, Easter and Whitson. And in the view of the authorities, it's the Sabbath, which is the only holy day which is actually sanctioned by the Bible. So that's, that's, that's the thing we want people to concentrate on in terms of religious devotion in a communal sense when they go to church. And which is why, you know, in the 1650s, when Cromwell is Lord Protector, it appears that most churches were closed on Christmas Day, so the policy was being enforced to that degree. There were also attempts to make shops open on Christmas Day as well, in order to sort of make some great social change. But we know it's not effective. We know that people are celebrating Christmas within their houses. And, you know, with the restoration of Charles II, Christmas returns with a fervour, uh, if you like. So it's not a successful policy other than in dictating you know, church services shouldn't occur on Christmas Day. But Cromwell himself, I think we can sort of partially and mostly exonerate him in this sense, that he wasn't responsible for the measure, but his regime did support it. And ultimately, the reason they did that was because it was part of this godly reformation of society. If they can make the English live in a godly way, God will bestow the English and the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish. If they all live in the godly way, God will bestow them with prosperity and will protect them from the, you know, the onslaughts of their foreign foes. Mm. Well, speaking of onslaughts, we move on to a section on weapons now and how people were armed during the wars. Steve asks, what weapons were used during the English civil wars? So a question for Paul. Many types of weapon were in use. Broadly speaking, we can divide the forces employed as artillery, infantry, and cavalry, operating in different ways, in different circumstances. But if we were to address first 
the artillery, it's generally used as a precursor, the first actions in set-piece battles to cause as much havoc among the opposing side before you actually come to close quarters. And of course, they had various types of guns, cannon in popular parlance, of many sizes and calibers. You know, Some of them were very small, the smallest being firing a solid round ball of about one and a quarter inches or 32 millimeters. And the largest, 12-inch caliber, so imagine the size of the ball that that fired, that's 305 millimeters. And they fired many different kinds of shot. Some of it solid, some of it explosive, etc. They also used even larger artillery pieces during sieges, and those were called mortars. And these were used to lob very large exploding shells at high angles over the defences into the enemy soldiers hiding behind barricades and walls and the rest of it. Indeed, we have one of these called Roaring Meg at Goodrich Castle, one of our properties in Gloucestershire. And there was a siege there in 1646, and Roaring Meg was cast especially for that siege, and it fired a projectile of 15 and a half inch diameter, so that's 39 <sighs> centimeters across. Wow. Uh, weighing 220 pounds or 100 kilograms. So that's artillery, and it's a very destructive form of weaponry used both in set-piece battles and in large and small sieges. So then we can turn to the infantry, the foot soldiers who did the hard slog work in these battles, and they can be divided into two main types. They were pikemen and musketeers. These two types fought in set battles as large, mutually supporting formations. And these are a combination of tactics to do that. So you have large massed columns of pikemen forming the center of a battle line, generally speaking with musketeers on the flanks. Musketeers obviously firing gunpowder weapons. But that kind of varied. There were various schools of thought about the best formations derived from continental countries like Sweden and, and the Netherlands. In broken country, they operated in different ways. More loosely, more fluid formations were employed. But broadly speaking, pikemen were equipped. They were armoured, actually, they wore armour. And the pike, in fact, is a long spear. And pikes of this period are about five metres long. And they have a very sharp point at the end. And they're used simply for thrusting. Obviously, a, a weapon of that length is very hard to handle. And so they are uh, held in a rigid way in these massed formations, which deter cavalry from coming too close. But also the aim is to come face to face with the pikemen of the opposing side. And then this thing called push of pike begins. Once that push began, the aim was to break the enemy formation because once the enemy formation was broken, that gave the cavalry chance to come in and pursue the enemy. And so this push of pack pike was a terrible, terrible thing. Men could be skewered on these long pikes, yeah. or they could be simply crushed by the weight of their fellow soldiers pushing behind them to try and win supremacy or trampled underfoot. It was a dreadful affair. And so on the flanks of the pikemen, you have musketeers who are equipped with something that looks a bit like a modern rifle. So it's a two-handed weapon which is brought to the shoulder and fired. Smooth board firing a solid lead ball of about 0.8 inch diameter. 
So that's, what is that? That's about 22 millimetres, something like that. And during the course of the war, you tend to find that because massed columns of musketeers are very effective at denuding the enemy, you get more musketeers and less pikemen as, as, as the war goes on. So then you have the cavalry. And the cavalry, as always, are generally speaking a shock weapon using the cavalry charge. But they have to choose when that happens because, as I described earlier, you can't effectively charge a massed column of pikemen because the horses just will simply not go anywhere near them. So the object was to break the formations up and then cavalry charges became the most effective. So they would carry a heavy sword, but they also sometimes carried axes, pole axes, and invariably they also were equipped with a short version of the musket called a carbine and often two pistols as well. So they were very heavily armed and their overall purpose, as I've said, was the shock tactics in battles either by charging or by sheer firepower to break the enemy formation and pursue it. And there was even a special form of cavalry called dragoons who were effectively mounted infantry who fulfilled support roles. So not doing cavalry charges, but rocking up during a battle at a particular moment, often dismounting with their gunpowder weapons and firing into the enemy. They also did things such as scouting, skirmishing, small-scale fighting, and foraging for the army. So I think you can see there's a very broad range of weapons, both traditional, you know, edged weapons and thrusting weapons, and also more technology. Gunpowder weapons are coming much more into play. And this is the first, the first real instance in England of modern warfare using these very large formations of soldiers equipped with gunpowder weapons. No, no archers at this point, no crossbows. Yes, there were. Uh, okay. Archers did still exist. But basically, archery as the main weapon of armies raised in England had radically declined by the end of the Tudor period. And there had been things called trained bands organized in the 1580s in the government of Elizabeth I, which were companies of soldiers equipped with muskets. And they had very largely taken over. But certainly in some of the outlying parts of the country where ordinary men conscripted were equipped with longbows, the longbows were used, but they weren't a massive and significant element at this time. Grape shot, was that something that was used? This is a question from Girl That Digs on Instagram. Yes, indeed. I, I suppose at this point, it's good to describe what grape shot actually is. Indeed. And it's a type of shot that's fired by artillery, by cannons. So we tend to think of artillery firing solid round shot cannonballs in popular parlance but they they fired all sorts of projectiles and grape shot is one of those so simply it's multiple small lead balls so earlier i described the size of a musket shot 0.8 inches well you have lots of those or perhaps even slightly larger shot the size perhaps of a golf ball and they're, depending on the caliber of the gun the size of the gun there could be 20 there could be 60 in a grape shot and how it's organized is that these grape shots are packed into a fabric bag, which forms a cylindrical shape held on the base with a wooden disc, tied at the top securely with cord and around so that the shot is tightly packed in there. So I suppose the black humor of the day was when these shots were prepared and wrapped around with cord, they looked like rather like a bunch of grapes. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that is put into a cannon after 
a gunpowder charge. And what happens is that when the gun is fired, the gunpowder charge explodes and fires the grape shot out of the cannon. In that process, the fabric bag basically disintegrates during the explosion and all these multiple lead balls are released. And as they're released and fired from the gun, they spread out in a kind of cone shape. So if you can imagine 50 or 60 small lead balls up to two or even two and a half inches diameter flying against a massed column of pikemen or a massed cavalry charge, the effect could be absolutely devastating. So grape shot, it's an anti-personnel weapon to use the euphemism, but it's also a weapon that's used very effectively against cavalry because it kills horses. Sounds like cluster bombs in modern military conflicts. Yes, cluster bombs is a sophisticated version. You know, cluster bombs actually explode themselves and then they release all of these multiple smaller bombs, which then explode as well, don't they? Mm. So it's a sophistication, I suppose, of, of the grip shot technique. There was a different kind called canister shot as well, which is effectively very similar, except that instead of being packed into a fabric bag, it's packed into a a very thin-walled tin cylinder, which, when fired, does exactly the same thing. The canister itself disintegrates and the lead balls spread out. And the effect, it would, would be terrible in that it would kill men and horses, but it would also wound men and horses. And generally speaking, if you were wounded by a shot of this kind, an open wound could not be treated, especially to the abdomen, and it would cause septicemia. So if you weren't killed by it on the battlefield, then you would die a prolonged and pretty awful death as a result of it. And they were also used in naval warfare, of course, not just on land, as a means of clearing the decks of men on an enemy ship or bringing down sails and rigging prior to taking the ship. So it was a a terrible invention. That moves us on to the next question about uh, the Navy, actually. It's a big what-if question from Will Pride 18 on Instagram. He says, if the Navy had remained loyal, would Charles I have won? So what do you think, Paul? It's one of those questions that you can't give a definitive answer to. However, what it relates to is that Charles had built up a large, powerful and prestigious Navy, especially during that period which he called the personal rule in the 1630s and the 1640s. Sorry, late 1620s and 1630s. And he'd done so by very unpopular tax called ship money. However, towards the end of that period, he effectively loses control of appointments to the Navy, to Parliament, and they outmaneuver the king in naval appointments from 1640 onwards. And in particular, the appointment of someone called Robert Rich, the second Earl of Warwick, in March 1642 as the Lord High Admiral, the man in charge of the Navy. Warwick was a parliamentary sympathiser. And although that was the case, this is one of the things about Charles. He makes some really strange decisions. He didn't contest it because he believed that the Navy as a whole was loyal to him. And it was a very grave miscalculation because very shortly afterwards, in July 1642, the Navy goes over to Parliament. Now, what's the effect of that? Well, while it's not possible to say if retaining the Navy would definitely have won Charles the war, it is very highly likely. It was an incredibly serious blow to the King's chances of winning it. And the reasons of this are fairly straightforward. The Navy was able to control the major ports and therefore the flow of weapons 
ammunition, supplies, and wealth generation through everyday commercial activity. They were also able to capture customs revenue, which went straight to Parliament and not to the Crown. And crucially, this is particularly the case with London. Had Charles been able to use his fleet to blockade London at the beginning of the war, the catastrophic loss of the London trade, denial of food and fuel supplies to the capital, would have resulted in mass defections from the parliamentary to the royalist side, and there would have been immense pressure on Parliament to concede defeat. They were also able to restrict the king's help from abroad and to aid the supply and strategic movement of their own forces. The parliamentary forces were able to move along the coast in strategic moves that put the royalist side at a disadvantage. And of course, they were also able to blockade what few ports the king was able to control during the war and set up blockades there. So in many ways, it was a stranglehold on some of the major resources that would have been available to the king otherwise. Moving on to a section about day-to-day life for ordinary people living in England during the civil wars, William Coyne on Facebook asks, what was life like for people not involved in the actual warfare? Did they continue farming, working and so on as best they could? So what was life like for ordinary folk, Roy? Well, laying my cards on the table, I think it was absolutely awful. I mean, this is an awful time to be around, even if you're not fighting this is an absolutely dreadful time to be around. And there there are numerous reasons I say that. So, for example, supposing you're lucky enough to live in a part of the country where there's very little active conflict. I mean, if you're in the southeast of England, for example, for a lot of the time, you know, close to London, the chances are that you're not going to see big pitch battles. You might see minor skirmishes. The chances are that the fighting has passed you by. Okay, But one thing you'll notice is you're being hit in the pocket in a way that you haven't been hit in the pocket ever. Both sides in the Civil War are forced to raise huge amounts of money in order to sustain the armies Paul's been talking about in the field. And, you know, so for example, we know that the annual levy on Oxfordshire imposed by the king was £61,000. And that Parliament was, if anything, even more successful in raising funds through assessments, regular assessments. And, you know, the irony of this is that these were far harder biting than anything the Crown had imposed on the counties before the war. So if you were one of these principled people who was fighting the king because of everything that's happened during his personal rule, you're now engaged in an activity which is costing you far more than anything he ever did, okay? Add to that that Parliament, followed by the king, introduced an excise tax. So this means that money is now being levied on luxury commodities, which are being imported from the country. But not just that, also beer and tobacco. Imagine how popular that would be. And then later on, they they extend that to include basic things like meat, fish, and salt as well. Okay, so you're being hit in in the pocket there. And then to add insult to injury, the armies are being billeted on people. So you're looking after them. You know, you've got them in your houses. Your horses and food is being requisitioned to supply the army. The theory is that you'll be recompensed at some point. You know, in a lot of cases, that didn't happen, that people lost material as a consequence of this and never saw any recompense at all. And then there's the, I suppose, the economic and social consequences of having so many people fighting. Paul's 
talked about the huge number of people who were, were, were um, actually fighting. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that from what we can tell from the 17th century evidence, that more people died as a consequence of the war than actually died directly fighting. So we think there was around you know, 85,000 or so casualties, direct casualties, but over 100,000 people dying of disease, which was spread as a consequence of warfare. Imagine being, you know, I always think that one of the worst possible places you could be would be in a town which was facing a siege, because there you have overcrowding, you have the army around you, you have, because of overcrowding, disease breaking out. You know, it's a period which is notorious for plague and for all sorts of illnesses. You know, things become unsanitary very quickly. And then at the end of all that, you face the brutality of a sort of the town being stormed. But even for people who manage to escape all of that, for, the, for all these various reasons, the war is something which would have affected their daily life because of what they're paying, because of having soldiers billeted on them, because they're seeing people going off to fight in the way that Paul's described. And if, as the evidence suggests, that the proportion of the population who die as a consequence of the war is around the same as the First World War, nobody's going to escape the, the consequences of that. The consequences will be social, they'll be economical, and they'll be psychological as well. So that's why I think this is one of the worst ages to have lived through in this country's history. It was total. Yeah, yeah because both sides are having to call on the available resources and the territories they govern to be able to sustain the war effort. And that means that the people in those areas have to make sacrifices, as I say, which were extremely novel, way beyond anything they'd experienced in their lives before. Mm. Yosef Ab Dafid on Twitter is wondering how many people would have been neutral in the war and adds, I've heard a lot about clubmen and I find them more agreeable than any other faction. What do you think about that, Paul? I think it follows on from what Roy's just been talking about, you know. It would have been enormously difficult, really, for people to maintain neutrality in warfare of this kind. It's generally accepted that ordinary people often cared little for any particular side as far as warfare is concerned. And this was perhaps true of many higher up the social scale as well as those at the lower ends of it. People's concerns were as Roy's just described about their everyday lives, getting by, having enough, and avoiding conflict. Having said that, there were regional differences in attitude and sympathies based upon complex and varied factors that we've talked about a little bit. Economics, religion, local political control, they all played a part. And because of all those things, it would have been very difficult to remain neutral as a non-combatant, particularly in areas of intense fighting. Allegiance and neutrality and the, the interplay between them were probably dependent on things like which side the prominent local lord and landholders took, your religion, economics, where your interests lay, and also on simple local experience of the war and what treatment you received. Was your home plundered? Was your family abused and harmed? And which side was doing that harm? Armies operated something called free quarter and plunder. And that basically meant they could do anything they wanted to achieve their ends. Accommodation without payment, living off the land, taking what they needed or wanted. And it was the people wherever they were that suffered at their hands. So neutrality must have been very, very difficult. And you could have been swayed one way or the other by 
a personal experience. Now, clubmen, in theory, tried to establish some form of neutrality, although even that was nuanced. And these were locally organized groups. They weren't fighting, in theory anyway, on either side. Sometimes they were spontaneously organized, and other times they were organized by people in authority locally, such as landholders and clergymen. And their ostensible purpose was not to take sides, but to prevent the excesses of the soldiery on both sides of the conflict, things like theft, rape, forced conscription, etc. Uh, they're called clubmen because they armed themselves with whatever they could, improvised weapons, hence their name. So they could come into conflict with the soldiers of either the royalist or the parliamentarian side. They were fairly widespread, especially in, uh, towards the end of the First Civil War from 1644 through to 1646. So you find them in the Midlands, you find them in the West Country, you find them in the South, in many counties, and, and they're kind of locally organized, some small, some large. I think, unfortunately, neither side in the war treated them wonderfully well or respected their aims. And in fact, in some cases, repressed them wherever they came across them. And also sometimes clubmen had their own sympathies, slightly one way or the other, which didn't actually help people very much. And there are a few instances where they come into conflict. A famous one was at Hambledon Hill in Dorset in 1645, when a group of clubmen assemble on a hill, an Iron Age hill fort actually, and they are attacked by a parliamentary force and quite a number of them are killed during that process. So in their attempts at neutrality, it seems that generally speaking, both sides in the conflict weren't wonderfully respectful of their neutrality. Rounding off this section on um, ordinary people, Kilman Lane via Twitter notes, apart from the Queen and Lady Banks, women are generally missing from the Civil War discussion. So what were women's roles in the war? Or do we lack the records to tell the story? What's your answer, Roy? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I think that the question is absolutely right, that in something older histories of the war, that women are missing from you know, sort of high political and military accounts, mainly because they, they weren't perceived as having played an important role in decision-making or the fighting. But as our as historical understanding of the war has spread beyond that to, to the, the social impacts of the war and understanding how messages about the war were deployed by both sides of the general population, I think there's far more awareness of the role played by women. As our questioner points out, there have always been notable exceptions, and they mentioned the Queen, Henrietta Maria, and Lady Banks, who, if anyone's wondering, defended Corfe Castle against Parliament. And you know, we can add to that people like Charlotte, Countess of Derby, who famously defended Latham House in Lancashire. And she was defending that against parliamentary forces. And on the opposite side, you had Lady Brilliana Harley, who defended Brampton Bryan Castle against royalist forces. The point about these people is they're, they're gentry aristocratic women who find themselves in the absence of their husbands and are leading the resistance to sieges of their actually their husband's property, legally speaking. But they're only the best documented of women who, in an age of particular gender roles, found themselves having to assume control of households and estates when their husbands or their fathers went to fight. 
And given the number of people fighting, this must have happened a great deal. And in fact, in some instances, it's clear that women did become directly involved in the fighting. So, for example, in the defense of cities and towns, they're sometimes seen making an important contribution there. Another way in which you have a more sort of, this this is quite interesting, this, a sort of organized women's response to the wars. In some cases, you get what are known as maiden troops. Um, This occurred in Norwich in 1643 and in London in 1644. And this is where groups of unmarried women come together to raise money to support a particular group of soldiers, hence them being called maiden troops, these groups of soldiers. And they fascinate me because, as I said, the gentry and aristocratic women are defending their, legally speaking, defending their husband's or male relative's property. But these unmarried women are effectively economically independent you know, they're, they're a different class of people. I would love to know more about them. And I think, you know, that's a field which is ripe for future future research. And then moving away from the fighting, there's actually instances where you get groups of women becoming politically engaged, popular politics. So they, they, they can't sit in the parliament in the House of Commons or the House of Lords, but they petition parliament. And in fact, there's a group of women who mass upon parliament in August 1643 calling for peace. And one of the things which happens in the 1640s is that there's a sort of an explosion of printed news and propaganda, which you've mentioned before. And it's hard to demonstrate this, but I'm sure that women were as active an audience of all of that as men. And one of the things which has been noticed is that the number of printed material actually authored by women increases during this period as well. And then uh, finally, just one more, I suppose you could argue, more positive outcome of the great changes of the 1640s and 1650s is when you have this proliferation of religious groups and gatherings and congregations, a lot of them had a far more progressive notion of women being able to engage directly in the way in which worship took place, the way in which personal revelation was spoken about. And it's a time when women are particularly noted for being able to prophesy for example. So it's a sort of um, area where a lot more work has to be done. And I think the question is right in as much that the documentary evidence which is available to us doesn't exist to the same degree as it does for understanding that the, the military and political side of things, you know, the, the, the traditional story. But it is there and it needs to be uncovered. And I, and I think it will be as you know further research happens. Mm. They also had this role as spies as well, didn't they? In, yes. In a, in a yes, number of instances. Yes. I mean, Charles, you'll remember the mm-hmm. podcast on Jen Horwood, yes. who assisted uh, Charles when he was captured. Uh, well, before, assisted him basically until his execution in 1649. So I think there were quite a lot of women who were involved in intelligencing, as they called it at that time. And there is increasing but still small evidence that there were soldiers in the army who were women disguised as men as well. And as Roy says, we need to do some more work on that because although I don't think it's ever going to be huge, I think there were perhaps a few more than we we actually like to admit. Definitely interesting ideas there to explore for future podcasts. Another key character or person, I should say, from the story of the English civil wars is the future Charles II, the son of the beheaded King Charles I. He has this connection to Boscobel House in Shropshire, which we visited on the podcast way back in episode 100. Worth listening to because you can hear me getting stuck in uh, where Charles 
ahead. Um, so that's a, <laughs> worth listening just for that. Cat nine six seven nine zero on Instagram asks: Is it true that Charles the Second hid up an oak tree? How close was he to getting caught? So, yes, Paul, you've listened to the episode. <laughs> exactly. The obvious answer to that one is to listen to, to episode one hundred. But the short answer is yes, Charles II did hide in an oak tree. And the circumstances were his defeat at arguably the, the defining battle of the Third Civil War, the Battle of Worcester on the 3rd of September, 1651. So he had to flee the battle site and he found himself at a place called White Lady's Priory, from which he was taken by a man called Richard Penderell, who lived at Boscobel. Initially, at a failed attempt to get him across the River Severn into Wales, near a place called Maidley, and then finally coming back to Boscobel two days later on the 5th of September. There he met with someone called Richard Careless, who was a royalist officer who had also escaped the battlefield. And the pair of them hid in a pollarded oak tree all day on the 6th of September. And apparently from which place, uh, from which hiding place, they could actually see parliamentary patrols searching, presumably for the king, and for any other royalists, officers and soldiers in the vicinity. So later that night, having hid all day, he was hidden in the priest hall in Boscobel House, which incidentally was a Catholic household. So he was gaining succor and support uh, from a Catholic family. After that, he went to a place called Morsley Old Hall, another Catholic house near Wolverhampton. And from there, on the 10th of September, he successfully escaped from the area, disguised as a servant of a lady called Jane Lane, another female role in the war, Jane Lane of Bentley, who were a local landholding family. And there followed a long and circuitous escape route down through Sirencester, Bristol, Lyme Regis, where he tried to get away but couldn't, Charmouth, and then Salisbury. And finally, after 43 days on the run, he made his way to a, a small port of Shoreham on the south coast. And from there, took a flight to France. So yes, he did hide in an oak tree and he was indeed very close to being captured. And he wasn't King Charles, he wasn't Charles II at that point. We're referring to him no. as Charles II, but he's the future yes. Charles II yeah. yes. at this stage. Yes, he is. He is Prince Charles. He's a young man of 2021, I think, at that time. Mm. Laura underscore Saxon on Instagram asks, did the Civil War have any effect on the way Charles II ruled when he came back to England in 1660 for his restoration? Roy. Yeah, this, this is interesting. Isn't it? It's sort of the legacy of the Civil Wars and royal authority and royal power and, and um, all the rest of it. And, you know, we can probably afford to take a slightly longer view on this as well. I think partly because there's, a, I think there's still a popular misconception that when Charles II came to England in 1660 and the monarchy was restored, that this was the beginning of our modern constitutional monarchy. But in fact, Charles assumed many of the powers his father had possessed, which is, I think, quite interesting, and far more than the parliamentary negotiators had wanted to leave the king in the 1640s. One example of how Charles had to respond directly to the circumstances of the 1650s was before he came back, he issued something called the Declaration of Breda, this is basically his attempt to reassure the people of this country that when he came back, there wouldn't be a bloodbath, that there wouldn't be you know, heinous acts of revenge, that there would be a settled resolution 
to the various political problems which had occurred after his father's execution. So he promises, for example, that the question of how to deal with estates which had been confiscated during the past two decades would be left to Parliament, that he would respect religious toleration of all Protestants, at least, not Catholics, of course, but all Protestants of all hues and colours, they'd be allowed to worship and there'd be a way in which you could bring them all within the fold of a national church. And critically, he also promised that there'd be a free pardon to all, with the exception of certain individuals named by Parliament. So you can see he's having to respond to those particular circumstances. But, and here's the but, when the so-called Cavalier Parliament met in 1661. It restored the king's powers to those which existed before 1642. In other words, it restored those powers which, well, I suppose the other way of looking at this, it respected the situation where Charles I had officially agreed to measures passed in Parliament. Anything which happened after the breakout of hostility was forgotten. So that meant that the king retained the right to appoint privy councillors and officers of state, so it would be the king's government. He doesn't have to look to parliament officially to endorse his decisions. The militia acts which are passed in the early 1660s placed control of the army back into the hands of the king. And even, this, I think this is incredible, remember that parliament had passed the Triennial Act, whereby you know it had to be called every three years. Well, that gets watered down at the beginning of Charles I's reign. So effectively meaning that there's a recommendation that Parliament should be called every three years, but there's no way of actually enforcing the king to do that. And in the religious sphere, that notion that the Church of England would encompass all those Protestant groups, well, actually it's the Parliament really which enforces a far more narrow definition of the Church of England. The bishops and archbishops come back. And that's why you end up with groups like the Baptists and Presbyterians and Quakers now becoming non-conformist and sitting outside the national church. One legacy of the 1640s and 50s was continued political divisions. And I think it's really important to say that the success of a monarch, you know, his ability to reign depended on how they performed in that new world. And to be as brief as possible, let's just say that Charles would prove adept at that. He was you know, a canny political mover. His brother and successor, James II, is far more like his father. He's high-minded, but politically disastrous, and he loses the crown in the so-called Glorious Revolution. And it's actually under his successors, William and Mary, that a lot of the big sort of issues still at play are resolved, and that parliamentary control over the crown, far more of that becomes achieved at that point, at the end of the 1680s, than in 1660. Right. But that's a whole other podcast, Charles. Roy, can I just make one observation on the army? Mm. Obviously, the, yeah. the, the army in 1660, at the return of Charles, is disbanded. So the new model army that had been yeah. created in 1645, which had basically propped up the Republican, if you like, regime in the 1650s, is immediately disbanded. And the army that Charles II creates for himself is very different. It's much smaller and its loyalty lies with the king. Yeah. That is really, really significant. And in fact, it's regarded widely as the beginning of the British army as we understand it today. But the crucial thing is that he gets rid of one army and he creates a small army that's loyal to him in exchange. And we're left with the phrase fighting for king and country. 
I suppose. Yep. Is that a legacy from that? Yes, I would imagine it is. Interesting. Moving on to some final questions before we uh, round out the episode. A few general questions. Stephen on Twitter asks, is it true that the bodies of fallen enemies were buried facing north-south rather than the traditional east-west? And if so, was this done as an insult, Paul? I doubt this. I've not heard of it previously. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but I would encourage Stephen, who asked this question, to look into his sources where that information comes from. I say that because there's very, very little information about what happened to people on the battlefield after they were killed. The circumstances of battle varied enormously from place to place, and it was often, or perhaps even usually expedient, to bury the dead in mass graves quickly. I would imagine sometimes this was done with a certain amount of honour and respect, and at other times in haste, because the conflict wasn't complete, basically. Important people might have been taken occasionally to a church for burial, but even this, I doubt, happened all the time. I suspect that there was a lot of propaganda deployed about disrespect for the dead to harm the opposing side's reputation and cause in the way that we have described for uh, you know a lot of the political arguments that Roy was talking about earlier. A lot of them were made and were very partisan. And I suspect this could be one of those pieces of propaganda. I mean, there are a, a few references to mistreatment. One that springs to mind is at the first Battle of Newbury in 1643, when a source describes several heaps of dead were found cast into wells, ponds, and pits. And one well of 30 fathoms depth was filled to the top with dead bodies. And in sundry places, arms and legs were sticking out besides those dead above ground. So I suspect this is partly a consequence of war, but I suspect it's usually exaggerated for the purposes of propaganda. So I would suggest that this might be a piece of propaganda that Stephen has read somewhere and would encourage him to look at it in some detail as to where that came from. Because most of the accounts about the dead are generally from contemporary sources. They're interested in the numbers killed and who was killed, not what happened to them afterwards. Another question about bodies, though, this time horses' bodies. What happened to all the horses that were killed in battle is a question from WA Payne RSM on Twitter, and that's for you, Roy. Yeah, thanks. It's a great question, and I'm going to be entirely honest and say you've beaten the expert in as much <laughs> that I really don't know. And, you know, I've been doing a little bit of work and thinking about this, and I've yet to find documentary evidence that tells us what happened to the bodies of horses. I can make some general assumptions. You know, one of the things we know which happens after battles is that corpses are stripped of any salvageable resources which can be used by other soldiers. And when you think of horses, you think of saddles and you think of horse tackle and all the rest of it, you know, that is valuable. And I, I, I'm sure that, that those things would have been taken off the bodies of horses after the battlefield. And then horses' bodies themselves, if you can get to them soon enough, and given everything Paul's been telling us about artillery, if they're in decent enough shape, they have an economic value to them. You know, think of horse hide, think of making glue from horses' bodies. So I can imagine a situation whereby either through order or opportunistically, people would go onto battlefields and would use the horses' bodies 
in order to exploit them where available. But what I can't do is give you any evidence for that. And so one of my jobs, having asked this excellent question, is to consider you know, where I can go next to find out you know, find out more about what happened. It could be that the answer is known very generally, and I, I just haven't come across it. Or it could be that it's something which, you know, it could be an exciting piece of new research. CFC Gaz from Instagram asks, why isn't the Civil Wars period as well known or as talked about as other wars and periods? Paul. Yeah, it's quite an interesting question, that, because, uh, you know, I remember a time in my younger life, maybe 30, 40 years ago, where it actually was quite talked about a lot. But now I agree it isn't. Uh, and there are probably several reasons for that. But I suppose, first of all, we as, as people are in living memory of wars, aren't we, in which we probably had relatives involved, possibly living, but possibly remembered ancestors, as it were. So that personal connection is a powerful motivator in finding out about a particular conflict. And this would apply in our case, for instance, to the Falklands War, to the Second World War, and until 10 or 15 years ago, perhaps the First World War as well. So it's that personal connection, living memory, that attracts a lot of people to have an interest in, in conflicts. Also, of course, we have major commemorations of the wars of the 20th century on Armistice Day, for instance, in November every year. And we also mark significant individual dates which are of particular importance as anniversaries. So, for instance, next year, it's going to be 80 years since D-Day, and I'm sure there'll be lots of commemorations of, of that event. So the memory of those events is kept alive, those modern events we consciously keep alive. And that's obviously compounded by the fact that almost every village and town in England has a cenotaph as it were, a memorial inscribed with the names of all those who died. And, and if you live in a village for any length of time, you will probably encounter descendants of those people who fought in those 20th century wars. And again, it's another way that we become interested. We also have national memorials. You know, I can think of the National Memorial Arboretum at Olry Wars in Staffordshire. We have great museums like the Imperial War Museum, which is mostly devoted to 20th century warfare. And now even visitor attractions, if I can, if I can use that term in this context. So the recently launched D-Day story in Portsmouth, and these generally tell the story of 20th century warfare. However, I have to admit that there is now, since 2015, a National Civil War Centre at Newark-on-Trent. So Excellent. there is something which marks the Civil War. And I suppose finally, and this is really significant, the wars of the three kingdoms, if I can round that off, it's not a mandatory subject taught in history in schools as part of the national curriculum, though it is included in Key Stage 3, that's 11 to 14-year-olds, as a non-statutory element of a module which is called the Development of Church, State and Society in Britain, 1509 to 1745. I suspect if it was a mandatory element of the national curriculum, then of course, it would be much more widely known and much more widely studied. It's a really difficult period to wrap your head around, even for me, to sort of try and piece together the story elements. It's quite a hard narrative to try and tell. So yes, <laughs> yeah. I think that helps answer it as well, don't you think? Yes, I mean, it's, it's an enormously complex period. As I think both Roy and I have indicated, it's so interleaved 
through society with you know subjects wide and various and motivations wide and various the events are complex they happen all over the three kingdoms and it's very difficult to distill down into an easily understandable subject so yeah i can kind of understand how it would be difficult to do and i suppose it's one of those periods that i think we'd all rather forget so it's a period that is a bit shameful i suppose I wonder if one of the, the, the issues is that it's hard to, at the outside, to understand the net result in as much that, you know, you have the 1640s, all that horrible fighting we've been talking about, and the political instability of the 1650s. And, you know, it's often referred to as the English Revolution. And then Charles comes back in 1660. And for the reasons we've, we've been discussing, it's hard to say that there's a revolutionary settlement at that point. You say, well, what was it all about? Mm. You know, I suppose it's hard to make the narrative add up to something unless you look at the longer picture, I would argue. And I think in terms of the, the longer legacy of the mid-17th century, it's, it's phenomenally important. And it's phenomenally important in terms of, you know, relations between the three kingdoms, particularly between Ireland and the rest of the British Isles. It's, it's, it's incredibly important for that. It's important for the way in which people in the three kingdoms look at themselves and understand themselves going forward as well. It becomes a flashpoint in the what's known as the Whig theory of you know, English history, where there's an emphasis on the sort of the, the constitutional questions at play and how the legacy of the Civil War will fuel and feed into political debates within the United Kingdom in, in, in the decades and indeed centuries afterwards and result in a constitution which in the 19th century, people in the United Kingdom regarded as being the best in the world, quite frankly. You know, and and so we're different to Europe. Why are we different to Europe? Well, perhaps it's because you know, we didn't have our ghastly revolution around the time of the French Revolution or in the mid-19th century, in 1848. It's because we got over all of that in the mid-17th century. And what emerged out of that was something better. So it becomes part of the national story. And I think that sort of reckoning is completely out of fashion now you know for all sorts of reasons and i think that may be one of the one of the reasons why it's it's not as at the forefront of the popular consciousness as it might be but it is worth saying that you know i think there are more books written about oliver cromwell than most sovereigns of this country that um there is a vibrant reenactment industry um the sealed knot is the most famous of the civil war reenactment societies so there is a popular interest in it it's just perhaps underplayed, I would say, certainly in the mainstream media. It's also an immensely long story, isn't it, Roy? The, the effects yeah. of the Civil War stretch yeah. out into the 19th century, arguably a little That's bit right. late, lighter yeah. than that. So trying to come to terms and explain its consequences, you know, something it began lasted a very, very, very long time. And that's even more difficult to tell. Yeah. Final question from Penny Ledger on Facebook then. She asks, what was the turning point between the execution of Charles I and the Restoration? So when Charles II took the throne in 1660. I mean, it's interesting. We were talking earlier, Paul was mentioning about all the political circumstances Oliver Cromwell faced in the 1650s and how that changed him and how to adapt to that. It's packed full of important political events. Yes. But, but I think the key thing to emphasise is that, you know, that there's no sort of inevitability about Charles II coming back in 1660. And, it, and it's hard to say for a lot of the 1650s that, you know, that there was a popular expectation that he would do. So you know, when you look at that journey which is undertaken, you have the House of Commons assuming supreme power, 
Then you have the grand irony of the fact that it's Oliver Cromwell who dissolves the rump parliament in 1653. Um, you have things like the establishment of Cromwell as Lord Protector, the end of that year. That's the first time, by the way, the country had a written constitution. And that moment in 1657, we mentioned earlier, when he declines to take the crown when it was offered to him. But if put on the spot, I would say the turning point in terms of the thing which makes the restoration more likely, and you know, I, 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 I hesitate to say this because I'm disinclined to go with the great man of history theory, but I think it's the death of Oliver Cromwell in 1658 because it unravels so quickly um, so do after I. him. Right. I, I do you? okay okay we're on, we're on safe ground together then okay. completely agree <laughs> he held it all together didn't he he basically yeah, held exactly. it all together through personality and his history and what he'd done and then as you say as soon as he dies the whole thing unravels there's nobody strong enough to keep right. what he'd created together that was actually yeah. about to be my final question, which was, whatever happened to Oliver Cromwell? But you've answered it. And that sort of neatly wraps up our episode. So thank you very much, gents, for talking us through the Civil Wars period. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we head to Stonehenge to reveal the unusual story of how a 19th century flower show is being recreated. Stonehenge itself actually had a cricket pitch. Perhaps part of the attraction of holding a dahlia show at Stonehenge is that the new crowds would come and watch the crickets. But it was definitely recognised at the time that it was unusual to hold a flower show at the Stones. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>